Hey, Mike here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Dark Poutine early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome to Dark Poutine. I am Mike Brown, and this is Matthew Stockton. Hello. Hello, Matthew. How are thou? I am great. Good. I don't know how to answer in the... Uh, ye olde worldy. In the ye old world, but anyway. I took my blood pressure medication and I'm happy. Oh, because this is a Mr. Big episode. Exactly. Ha. Huh. Gets my blood boiling. Yeah, me too. The views, information, and opinions expressed during the Dark Poutine podcast are solely those of the producer and do not necessarily represent those of Curious Cast, its affiliate Global News, nor its parent company, Chorus Entertainment. Dark Poutine is not for the faint of heart or squeamish. Our content is often intense and some listeners may find it disturbing. We are not experts on the topics we present, nor are we journalists. We are ordinary Canadian schmucks chatting about crime and the dark side of history. Let's get to it. Put on your toque, grab yourself a double-double and an Nanaimo bar. It's time to scarf down some dark poutine. You are responsible for obtaining and maintaining at your own cost all equipment needed to listen to dark poutine. Dark poutine can be addictive. Side effects may include, but not be limited to, pausing and questioning the system, elevated heart rate, pondering humanity, odd looks from colleagues as you laugh out loud at work, family members not into true crime worrying about you. Positive side effects may include some perspectives and opinions that you disagree with, as well as some wokeness and empathy. If you don't think dark poutine is for you, consult your doctor immediately. On Saturday, June 23, 1990, three teenagers, Bridget Grenier, 16, Kyle Unger, 19, and Timothy Houlihan, 17, all separately attended a music festival at a ski resort near Rose Isle, Manitoba. The following morning, Bridget was discovered dead in a creek in a heavily forested area within the resort. She'd been sexually assaulted, beaten, tortured, and strangled to death. As both had been seen with the victim during the hours before her death, police quickly targeted Kyle Unger and Timothy Houlihan as suspects in Bridget's slaying. Forensic evidence pointed to Houlihan, and he in turn pointed to Kyle Unger as Bridget's murderer. But Kyle was adamant he had nothing to do with Bridget's death. The apparent physical evidence against Kyle Unger was a single strand of hair found on Bridget's sweatshirt. RCMP needed more, so they turned to their tried-and-true Mr. Big technique and, sure enough, acquired a confession from Kyle Unger. In February of 1992, both Unger and Houlihan were convicted of first-degree murder. Both appealed. Houlihan's appeal was successful, and in 1993, the Manitoba Court of Appeal ordered a new trial for him. However, Tim Houlihan completed suicide before his second trial could commence. Kyle Unger's conviction was upheld. Did the justice system get it right? Unfortunately, we see that it did not, at least not right away, or for a long time. This is Dark Poutine episode 254, Failed Justice, the murder of Bridget Grenier. Summer was beginning in Carmen, Manitoba on Saturday, June 23, 1990. Carmen is a small agricultural town of about 3,000 people, around 85 kilometers southwest of Winnipeg, and just 60 kilometers north of the U.S. state of North Dakota. Although tiny, Carmen is notable for being the hometown of Eddie the Eagle Balfour, who played goal for the Chicago Blackhawks, Florida Panthers, San Jose Sharks, Dallas Stars, and of course, the Toronto Maple Leafs. Also known as Crazy Eddie for his quirky behavior on and off the ice, Balfour was inducted into the Manitoba Sports Hall of Fame after he retired from professional hockey in 2008. I'm glad you mentioned it's hockey because yeah. you're naming all those 
uh, teams. Yes. And I was trying to figure out what sport it was. If I'm talking about a team sport, it's usually hockey. That's the one where they're on blades and they shoot a disc at net with sticks. That's correct. In case our listeners don't know. Yeah. Even though hockey, for those, some people might be surprised to find out that hockey is actually not our national sport. It's lacrosse. I know. Yeah. I like lacrosse, actually. It's interesting. I saw a little bit in uh, Alberta last weekend. Yeah, it's fun. Teenage buddies John Beckett and Kyle Unger, 19, wanted to kick off the 1990s summer season with a bit of a party, and they were looking for some excitement. Kyle had worked in Alberta since he'd left school the year before, so he was home for just that purpose. For the summer, let's have a little bit of a whoop-de-doo. A <laughs> whoop-de-doo. Having yet to decide whether or not to go, the pair settled on the day of the event to head to the Woodstick Music Festival, obviously a play on Woodstock, held at the Birch Run Ski Area near Rosile. It was just a 20-minute car ride west of the small rural town of Carmen where they lived, and it was the most exciting thing happening for miles around. The guys knew there'd be booze, girls, and recreational drugs at the event. Much better than another summer night running the same old streets. Woodstock in the sticks. Yeah. <laughs> Woodstick, it works. Well, Woodstock was actually in the sticks too, so. Yeah. You know, there's a Woodstock, Ontario. Mm -hmm. One of my first advertising jobs yes. was placing um, ads in the Frankfurter Allgemeine Zeitung. Oh. Newspaper to try to get companies to move to Woodstock, Ontario. Oh, there you go. And we always call it Woodstock uh, at the office. So Kyle and John stuck out their thumbs and soon hitched a ride down Highway 245 to Rose Isle and arrived at the festival at about 8.30 p.m. that evening, and it was already in full swing. Festival goers, a few hundred of them, milled around, dancing, listening to music, and partying. Kyle and John walked around the festival grounds briefly before becoming involved in a game of pickup football and drinking beer with some other young men the boys knew from school. Miami Collegiate. <laughs> Imagine if you move from abroad thinking you're going to Miami Collegiate because that's what your parents told you. Yes. So you rock up and you arrive at school in a Manitoba winter and you're totally depressed in your shorts. Miami, Manitoba, yeah. Oh, well. I think that's probably an overpromise. <laughs> yeah, it seems like it. <laughs> According to Real Justice, the story of Kyle Unger, Richard Brignall's book about the case, Kyle was a bit of a loner with a reputation. Brignall writes that Kyle had trouble making friends due to his temper and unpredictable behavior. He'd even been booted out of school for being violent, and some feared him. One of the people Kyle felt was his friend at school, other than John Beckett, was a girl named Bridget Grenier. Kyle was happy to see Bridget walk by at the festival and decided to seek her out. Leaving the football crowd for a bit, Kyle and John found her and her pals sitting on the grass near the festival stage listening to the bands play. Kyle sat beside Bridget and they talked for 20 minutes or so, catching up, having not seen each other in a while. After that, John and Kyle walked around for a bit more before returning to play some more football. Alcohol seemed to exacerbate Kyle's temper and his play became more aggressive as he drank more that evening. One of the other football players had a minor scrap with Kyle. Kyle was playing just a bit too rough. The other player had to sit on Kyle to calm him down as things seemed to escalate toward a real fight. Finally, Kyle and John had worn out their welcome and decided to walk around some more, fumbling through the crowd, eventually sitting down to watch and listen to the music themselves. Richard Brignall wrote in his book that Kyle had disappeared at one point for around 10 minutes. When he came back, Kyle stuck out his tongue. On it was a hit of blotter acid he'd obtained while he was out of John's sight. As the last band of the night played, both stoned and drunk, Kyle decided he wanted to seek out Bridget Grenier for a dance. John tagged along. So far, this sounds like almost any outdoor high school party that I went to that yeah. I remember. <laughs> Me too. I remember a lot of parties just like this. We did so many parties in fields or mm -hmm. what we called the back 40. The back 40, yeah. yeah. Yeah, we, we partied in the woods a lot. Yeah. Yeah. So just anywhere away from parents, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, anywhere we could sort of get a car. Sometimes we were unsuccessful, but... It was kind of rude of Kyle to not tell his friend he's getting some acid. Well, you know, maybe his friend didn't do it. I don't know. True. Or maybe there was only one. Yeah, there's never only one. <laughs> 
The pair couldn't find Bridget. She was not with her friends, but her purse and other belongings were there, so it followed that she couldn't have been far away. Kyle and John waited briefly for her to return, but she didn't, so the guys danced with the other girl. Kyle finally spotted Bridget in the crowd just a ways off. She was dancing with another guy whom Kyle didn't know. She seemed really into the guy and kissed and touched him as they danced. It was Tim Houlihan, a 17-year-old who also attended Miami Collegiate with Bridget. She hadn't known Tim to this point, but she seemed quite taken with him that night. Kyle tried to inject himself into the dance party, but Bridget blew him off. Kyle liked Bridget and was more than a bit jealous, so he decided he wanted to be away from the girl and her new male friend. He didn't want to look at that. After Bridget rejected Kyle, he and John went to the bonfire where a large group of festival goers had congregated. The guys hung out there for a while. Kyle needed a leak and went into the bushes for some more privacy. According to Richard Brignall, Kyle came back with some interesting news. According to court documents, Kyle told John that in the woods he'd seen Bridget, quote, going at it with some guy over there. The music stopped somewhere between 2 and 2.30 a.m. Soon after, Kyle Unger told John Beckett that he was off to, quote, go look for some tail. Beckett, sleepy from the beer, nodded off. He was unsure exactly how long Unger was away from his sight, but estimated it could have been as little as 20 or 30 minutes. When Kyle returned, he claimed he'd gotten what he was after, but John suspected he was not telling him the truth. John had known Kyle to be a bit of a bullshitter, especially when it came to girls at times, but he just overlooked it. Of course, that was just Kyle being Kyle. Kyle and John left the music festival around 4.30 a.m., hitching a ride back to John's place. They got there at around 5 a.m., and they both nodded off. After that, nothing seemed out of the ordinary. Kyle woke up early in the morning and started to walk home. Luckily, on his way, his mom, out and about and on her way home, spotted Kyle and gave him a lift. Bridget's friends had last seen her at around 1.30 a.m. when she was dancing with Tim Houlihan. The friends were leaving and tried to get Bridget to come along, but she refused. She was having such a good time with Tim. She assured her friends she'd be careful, and they'd left her there with him. According to Brignall's book, Bridget was a virgin at the time and assured her pals she'd still be one tomorrow. Almost immediately after her friends left, Bridget and Tim left where everyone was dancing and made their way into the brush for a little more privacy away from the crowd. No one recalled seeing Tim Houlihan again until sometime between 4 and 4.30 a.m., hours later. When his friends saw him, Bridget was not with him. From court documents, quote, His face and clothing were muddied. There were scratches on his face and blood on his chin. One witness noticed that it appeared he had received a good beating. When asked for an explanation, Tim Houlihan volunteered that he'd been with a girl or had been following a girl and had been beaten up by an unknown male and had passed out. Although he initially appeared withdrawn and unconcerned with his injuries, he later did some more drinking and conversed with friends. On leaving the area early in the morning, he and a friend stopped to set fire to the contents of a barrel near the entrance of the festival area. Upon returning to his friend's home, Houlihan ate a hot dog and went to bed. End quote. At 10 a.m., two young men cycling around the resort noticed something in the woods lying in a creek. It was a nude body, a young woman's body. She was clearly deceased. The pair went for help. A music festival worker called RCMP. Constable Ron Muir of the Carmen Detachment was the first officer to respond and secure the scene. It took some time, but bloodied and muddy clothing, later determined to belong to the victim, was found strewn about. The clothing had been savagely torn from her body and thrown willy-nilly into the brush nearby. A school backpack containing a photo ID from Miami Collegiate matched the girl lying in the mud. It was 16-year-old Bridget Grenier. The scene was gruesome. Whoever had done this to her had been merciless. After evidence was gathered, which included blood and hair, at about 5.30 p.m., Bridget's body was removed from the scene and taken to St. Boniface Hospital in Winnipeg for an autopsy. According to court documents, Bridget had suffered a terrible beating. Severe blows to the head had caused subarachnoid bleeding, she had been strangled, and long, sharp sticks had been forced into her vagina and anus. These were described as having been inserted with great force. 
there were many other injuries to her body. There were no signs of any defensive wounds indicating a surprise blitz attack that quickly incapacitated her. There were also bite marks found on the victim's breasts and on an arm. Dr. Peter Markestein, the provincial forensic pathologist, described the bite marks as superficial, meaning that the marks did not contain actual breaks of the skin, but deferred to the expertise of Dr. Sperber, a forensic orthodontologist who also consulted on the case. Dr. Sperber said that he had frequently seen bite marks like this in cases of violent assaults. He described the bite marks as an aggressive type of bite which would have occurred while the victim was alive and they would have caused pain. Dr. Markestein concluded that the large degree of bruising on Bridget's head was consistent with her having been struck with a heavy stick and that blows to the head were likely struck with sufficient force to render the victim unconscious. She was either dead or dying when the sticks had been inserted. While the principal cause of death was undoubtedly asphyxiation due to strangulation, the blows to her head would have, quote, finished her off. Police had hundreds of witnesses to interview, the many attendees at the festival. Thanks to Bridget's friends and John Beckett, investigators quickly honed in on the two young men who'd shown the most interest in Bridget that night. They were, of course, Kyle Unger, who was already known to them, and Bridget's classmate, Tim Houlihan, with whom she'd been last seen. Police spoke with Kyle Unger first as a witness rather than a suspect. Without wanting a lawyer present, Kyle answered all questions without hesitation. He was cooperative and said he wanted to help the investigation in any way he could. He'd heard that Bridget Grenier had drowned and she was a good friend and he had, in fact, spoken with her that evening and sat with her for a time. Police asked him for a hair sample and he provided it without hesitation. He said he'd seen Bridget and Tim Houlihan dancing and making out in the bushes near the festival. Kyle steadfastly denied his involvement in or knowledge of the crime. Ooh, there's some mistakes that I wouldn't have done there. Like giving hair samples and speaking to the police without a... A lawyer. Yeah, and I mean, he's 19, you know, and it, maybe he doesn't have a guilty conscience and thinks, mm. I guess we'll see. Yeah. After the police interview, Kyle joked with a friend that he was going to be charged with first-degree murder. Eek, there's mistake number two. Well, I mean, you know, you've you've dragged into to talk to the police and a, a little bit of uh, maybe dark humor. Mm -hmm. You just say, oh, yeah, they're probably going to charge me with first-degree murder now. But, uh, yeah. According to witnesses, Tim Houlihan was the last person to have been seen with Bridget when she was alive. So... He was the next person the police wanted to speak with. Coming from a respected family of some means, he'd lawyered up right away when he'd learned the police wanted to talk to him. Contrary to what some people would believe, this does not necessarily imply guilt, but does indicate knowledge of one's rights and an abundance of caution. Tim was also a minor at the time, so his parents wanted to ensure their son had proper representation. You know, when my husband and I watch uh, a movie or true crime documentary, mm -hmm. we both yell, lawyer, yeah, me too. at the screen whenever a character is put into a police interview situation. Yeah. And I tell you, if I was picked up for anything, even if I knew I was totally innocent and had a rock solid alibi, I would not utter a single word to the police without a lawyer. Yeah. I just wouldn't do it. Not a single word. Yeah. You've written here, in fact, if I wanted a glass of water, I'd do via charades. <laughs> it's, it's true. I thought maybe that was a bit dramatic, but that's me. No, that's funny. No, I just, I, I've just seen it too many times. It, it's, your words can be twisted and yeah. get, get representation. Absolutely. Representation. It doesn't mean you're, it doesn't mean that you're going to look like you're, you're guilty. It's, well, the police aren't going to like it. Yeah, but, but that's fine. They have to do their job. Yeah. Right? It is your legal, <laughs> it is your legal right to have representation present. And you don't have to say a single thing. Nope. Tim Houlihan's lawyer brought the young man into the RCMP detachment for his first brief interview and stayed with him. Tim's lawyer told the TV documentary series Dark Waters, quote, At this point, because the investigation was very new, on the advice of counsel, he declined to provide any comments, and he was released, and he was allowed to go home, end quote. When first seen on the evening of June 25th, the police observed visible markings on Tim's face and hands, no statement was taken as he was a young offender and his parents were not present. 
Tim and his lawyer returned to the RCMP detachment the next day. Tim was ready to tell his version of events. Tim claimed that he'd been having consensual sex with Bridget when the couple was attacked violently by an unknown assailant who'd knocked him unconscious. Tim said that when he came to, Bridget was gone, and he'd not known what had happened to her. Again, Tim was allowed to go home. In yet another interview, his final one, very soon after the second, Tim revealed more information. He said that he knew who the assailant was, but was in fear for his life, so he had earlier declined to name the person. Police asked whether the person was Kyle Unger, and Tim claimed it was. He also claimed that he'd lied about losing consciousness and that he'd seen Kyle murder Bridget. Tim's lawyer told the documentary series Dark Waters, quote, Tim told police that he and Ms. Grenier were having consensual sexual activity, which was interrupted when Mr. Unger came upon them and proceeded to attack Tim and then beat and kill Ms. Grenier, end quote. From court documents, quote, According to Houlihan, Unger, while savagely attacking the deceased, commanded Houlihan to punch the victim a couple of times, which he did. On Unger's orders, Houlihan then assisted Unger in moving the body. Houlihan said he did nothing further out of fear for his own safety and that he assisted Unger under duress. In his second statement, Houlihan said that he and the deceased had finished having sex together and were in the process of dressing when Unger came upon the scene. Houlihan's socks were wet, so he did not bother to put them on. Investigating police found Houlihan's socks near where the murder took place. He had one shoe on and was just putting on the other when someone came up and pushed Bridget. Houlihan tried to intervene, but this individual, who he recognized as Kyle Unger, turned on him, pushing him down and kicking him. Unger then continued his attack on the deceased, beating her and choking her. Houlihan said he heard Unger say to the deceased, so you don't like me? And the attack continued with increasing ferocity. Houlihan says he tried to intervene again, but was again attacked by Unger and told to keep out of the matter. The unrelenting attack on the deceased continued. The girl's clothes were ripped off and she was punched and strangled. Mercifully, it would seem that the deceased was unconscious and probably dead or dying when the most violent aspects of the assault took place. Houlihan says he started to run from the scene but fell and Unger, quote, put the boots to me. Shortly thereafter, Unger ordered Houlihan to come over where the deceased was lying and strike her. Houlihan says he hit her twice. He was also ordered to help Unger to move the body down to the creek, and he did so. He was warned by Unger not to reveal what he had witnessed or Unger would, quote, get him. Houlihan said he did not go to the police immediately because of fear. He was afraid of Kyle Unger, and he was fearful that he himself would become implicated as a result of the mud and blood on his clothing. End quote. Forensic evidence demonstrated that Tim Houlihan had Bridget's blood on his running shoes. A hair found on Bridget's pants was consistent with having originated from Tim Houlihan's scalp. A pubic hair found on Bridget's socks was determined to have originated from Tim Houlihan. That just doesn't seem believable to me. Uh, Houlihan's story? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, oh, he put the boots to me. You know, at these parties, there's lots of people around. He could have been yelling. Mm-hmm. And they just met. What is the likelihood of two strangers murdering somebody together? Pretty unlikely. Pretty slim. Interesting. Putting the boots to me, but you had scratches on your face yeah. and on your arms and hands. Yep. If, if someone beats you up, you get a black eye, maybe, and a bloody nose. You're like, it's a totally dodgy story. Yeah. It doesn't pass the smell test. Nope. Tim Houlihan was claiming he was a victim in the whole affair, but the evidence didn't seem to add up that way. Tim looked as though he'd been in a hell of a fight. His clothes were muddied, and as mentioned previously, he had scratches on his face and hands. Kyle Unger, witnesses recalled, had been wearing the same t-shirt and jeans all night and had not a mark on him when he was seen at the bonfire between 3.30 and 4 a.m., a single hair that investigators believed consistent with Kyle Unger's scalp hair was found on the blue Nike sweatshirt that Bridget had been wearing that evening. The science used to determine whether this was Unger's hair was not exact and today would not hold up in court. As well, DNA evidence was in its infancy at the time. The single hair, investigators believed, was more than enough evidence to place Kyle with Bridget. 
As far as the bite mark on Bridget's body goes, Kyle Unger agreed to provide a dental cast of his teeth. The orthodontologist who was consulting on the case said that the bite mark did not match Kyle's sample. Tim Houlihan, on the advice of counsel, refused to provide a cast and never did so. At that time, police were unable to acquire a warrant to compel Tim Houlihan to provide a dental impression. Only days after Bridget's death, both Kyle Unger and Tim Houlihan were arrested and charged with first-degree murder. More after a quick break. I'm Samantha Cole, host of the new season of Understood, The Pornhub Empire. Over the course of four episodes, I'll tell you how a horny YouTube knockoff in Canada came to dominate the porn world, only to shatter their cheeky reputation in a massive scandal. The Pornhub Empire is a new season of Understood from the CBC. Available now wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back. Uh, Matthew, thoughts on this episode so far? So Kyle yeah. was not seen only for about 20 minutes at this party. Big, lots of people milling around. It was crowd, so crowded, like he and his friend lost each other a couple of times. For 20 minutes, yeah. right? He was an actual friend of hers. Right. Uh, he didn't have a scratch on him. There was no blood on him. He freely gave his teeth impression. The bite mark, and this doesn't really matter because they're unreliable anyway, didn't match his. Yeah. The police have a hair that they think is his, which could have been on her from when they were together earlier. Yeah, like sitting together. Maybe they hugged each other. And meanwhile, Houlihan is bloodied, had blood on him. Scratched up. Scratched up, had been missing for hours. Mm -hmm. And they both get arrested. Right. Right? And it's just, I still think, you know, this two guys meet up and murder a girl together. First time they've met each other. Right. Just does not hold water. No. I mean, it's so obvious. <laughs> is it? It is. From court documents, Houlihan was transferred to adult court on November 7, 1990, and the transfer was upheld on appeal to the Court of Queen's Bench and the Manitoba Court of Appeal on June 10, 1991. An appeal about the transfer to the Supreme Court of Canada was withdrawn on August 30, 1991. He was charged as an adult, and it was upheld. Right. There was plenty of forensic evidence linking Tim Houlihan to the crime. The case against Kyle Unger proceeded to a preliminary hearing. Prior to its conclusion, the Crown entered a stay of proceedings against him on December 11, 1990. Typically, a stay would be entered at a preliminary hearing if it was determined that there was not enough evidence to convict at trial. So, the single hair was kind of spurious. Perhaps it had been transferred to Bridget's top when she'd seen Kyle earlier in the evening, as we mentioned before, having sat with him. Kyle was released. And that should have been the end of police dealings with Kyle, in my opinion. Maybe, maybe, but it wasn't. However, after the stay in charges against Unger, police were made aware of claims by several inmates that Kyle Unger admitted to killing Bridget. A jailhouse informant named Jeffrey Cohen said that when Unger returned to his cell after being advised that the charge was stayed, Unger said to him, quote, I killed her and I got away with it. In June 1991, RCMP decided to obtain a warrant to listen in on Kyle Unger's telephone conversations and to record video of him. As well, RCMP began a Mr. Big operation against Kyle Unger with the hope of acquiring a confession. And here we go. Here we go. Let's see how they groom a 19-year-old kid, right? Yeah. What could possibly go wrong? What could possibly go wrong? (laughs) I mean, hey, we're a big criminal organization and you're a bored 19-year-old. Well, I guess he's 20 at that point. Yeah. And probably not a lot of money hanging out, you know. How do people not see that this Mr. Big thing is so... So wrong. Well, in 1990, they didn't have podcasts to listen to. Uh-huh. And this is why I kind of do, I don't, like, I, I'm on the fence about it. I'm, I'm a little on the fence about educating the criminal. You right. know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Maybe there's a more rock-solid way to get to a confession or a conviction rather than having to coerce it from somebody. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. It didn't take very long for the RCMP to get what they were after. 
from court documents, quote, Four undercover operatives in all were involved, all RCMP officers. One officer, in particular, Larry Tremblay, befriended Unger. The plan was to give Unger the impression that the undercover team was involved in criminal activities and to leave him with the idea that he could become part of the organization. That old chestnut. Corporal Larry Forbes was cast in the role of the head of the organization. In the first week or so of the undercover operation, Tremblay established a personal relationship with Unger. He conveyed the notion that he liked Unger and that he was out to help him become involved in the organization. During this initial period, Unger, on four separate occasions, advised Tremblay that he had been wrongfully imprisoned for murder. No clarification was requested by Tremblay on that occasion. On June 22, 1991, Tremblay and Unger attended at Forbes' apartment. Tremblay had cautioned Unger, who was, who was anxious to make a good impression, that he must be truthful. Early in the discussion, Forbes said to Unger, quote, Larry tells me you whack somebody. That's fine with me. That's, that's fucking excellent. It's the kind of thing that, uh, you know, I'm dealing with somebody that's on my fucking, somebody I can trust. That's the kind of person I'm looking for, end quote. The court documents continue. Although Unger had told Tremblay that he wanted to talk to Forbes about the murder, he had not admitted his guilt. Notwithstanding, Unger did not correct Forbes. In this and other conversations, Forbes emphasized to Unger that he had to be able to trust Unger, having left the impression that the undercover group was involved in an illegal activity, which Unger assumed to be drugs. He was not interested in taking into the group someone with ongoing problems with police. Unger initially hesitatingly and ultimately with demonstrable enthusiasm confessed to the murder. Throughout his numerous discussions with Forbes and Tremblay, he maintained that he had acted alone. On June 23, 1991, Unger, Tremblay, and Forbes visited the scene of the murder. In conversations that took place between June 23 and 25, Unger contradicted himself with respect to details concerning the murder. Although the same essential details of the beating and strangulation of the victim remained the same and were consistent with forensic evidence. Also, on the 23rd of June, 1991, a conversation was intercepted between Unger and Beckett, in which Unger stated that he had obtained a trusted position within a criminal organization and would be making a lot of money. He indicated that he got the job because of the reputation he gained as a result of being charged with murder. On June 25, 1991, Unger was rearrested and charged once again with first-degree murder. End quote. At a joint trial for both Unger and Houlihan, the Crown presented the audio and videotape recordings of Kyle and the undercover RCMP officers talking about Bridget's murder. Tim Houlihan didn't testify, nor did his defense present any evidence. Kyle Unger, though, testified. So uh, I thought the rule was never testify in your own defense at a murder conviction, Well, at, at, an, at a murder trial. Well, because they're going to do the twisty turny of your words. This is the thing about this one, because it was a joint trial right. and because Houlihan's team didn't present any evidence or say a word. Essentially, they just questioned the prosecution witnesses or the crown witnesses. Sorry, Mr. Pink's Kyle's lawyer thought, hey, wait a minute. Kyle's willing to talk right. and he is willing to tell the truth. Right. He didn't kill Bridget. Mm. So he's going to say, I don't know what happened to her. Right. And that's essentially what he said on the, on the stand. Yeah, I hung out with her. No, I didn't kill her. Mm. I only admitted to having killed her to the RCMP officers because I thought I was going to become part of this criminal organization and make a lot of money. I lied to them. So why didn't Tim Houlihan get onto the stand and say the same things. Sometimes it is a gamble that is taken by a defense team. And in this case, I actually think it was the right gamble to take, even though we will see. That it wasn't the right outcome. Yeah, that it didn't pay off. Sheldon Pinks, Kyle's defense attorney, later told the Dark Waters documentary series that he believed Tim Houlihan's statements did not ring true. He said what Matthew said, essentially, what are the odds, logically, of two people who don't know each other meeting together by accident and both of them being so vicious they would do both not knowing each other, have this common link, and be capable of committing the acts that were perpetrated on Miss Grenier? 
How can you possibly think of that scenario unless you're writing fiction? End quote. Like Strangers on a Train. Did you ever see that yeah, film? Yeah, it's my, my favorite Hitchcock film. Yeah. Pinks pointed out serious inconsistencies in what Kyle had told undercover operators that, in his opinion, did not come close to matching the evidence at the scene. He felt that Unger's confession had been coerced by the undercover operators, and Pinks felt Kyle Unger had not done the crime. I think, honestly, I don't know if it's how you wrote this, yeah, but it's so obvious that yeah. he didn't, right? <laughs> well, and and... Is it obvious? It's not obvious well, to everybody we're going to find out. I know, but like, you know, they get this guy and then the guy goes and shows what he did, right? And he's getting it completely wrong. Yeah. That's one of the first things they do to try to weed out, um, you know. People, false confessions. False confessions is they, they'll do tricks like, how many times did you stab her? You know, two times. And then they go, ha ha, but she was shot, not stabbed. Yep. Right? Pink's pointing out. The lack of conclusion in regard to the bite mark evidence against Kyle didn't seem to move the jury in the direction of his innocence. But there was something else. Pink's also proved that Kyle had not returned to the remand center after the charges were stayed after the preliminary trial. That meant that the jailhouse informant, Jeffrey Cohen, who in Pink's opinion was lying, had fabricated the whole conversation which was said to have happened after the stay proceedings. Mm. In his final submissions, Pinks pointed out that Houlihan had said nothing during the trial while Kyle had willingly testified in detail. The jury, it seems, disregarded these pieces of evidence and was so shocked by the Mr. Big video confession in which Unger was so animated and cold, they couldn't see any other option than to convict. Ay ay ay. <laughs> yeah context right mm -hmm. so context and evidence and uh, and this is why you know so they the, the jury probably didn't even grasp the context in which he said that confession right right and this is another weakness of mr big right so the jury gets this dramatic audio and video confession that the average punter obviously uh, you know a jury of your peers. A jury of your peers yeah um can't get over because it's so dramatic right mm-hmm and they, but at the same time, they can't really place themselves into the how, why, when it was said, right? Where it was said, yeah. how it was said. Like, yeah. he's a 19 year old kid trying to like impress get, some bad guys and get some money. Of course, he yeah. seemed cold. It's like, yeah, I can do it, man. Right. Yeah. On February 28th, 1992, Houlihan and Unger were both convicted of murder in the first degree. They were held for sentencing. Appeals for both began immediately. On July 7, 1993, Tim's attorneys were successful in their appeal and a new trial was ordered for Tim Houlihan. Unfortunately, before Tim Houlihan could be tried a second time, he completed suicide in 1994. Kyle's application for a new trial was denied on December 2, 1993 by the Supreme Court of Canada and his conviction was upheld. Kyle always maintained his complete innocence in the crime, now sentenced to life, with no chance of parole for 25 years. Innocence Canada became involved in Kyle's cause in 2003 from their website. Quote, Innocence Canada, formerly the Association in Defense of the Wrongly Convicted, or AIDWIC, is a non-profit organization that was founded in 1993 and incorporated in 2000. You know, let me jump in there. Okay. As a brand strategist, I can see why they changed their name. Yeah. The Association in the Defense of the Wrongly Convicted yeah. is a mouthful, and AIDWIC isn't really a great acronym, is it? No. Um, you know, just looking at that, I was thinking, you know, publicity is, must be really important for them, right? Because, mm -hmm. you know, they do their legal work in the court, mm -hmm. but they probably have to do that you know, some PR work for the court of public opinion. Totally. Right? Because people who have been convicted, there's a lot of people out there that think they're, they're guilty. Mm -hmm. And, you know, people like a tight ending in a story. They like it wrapped up, don't sure, they? Sure, yeah. And L with a little bow on it, that's the yeah, end. Yeah, and that's yeah. the end. And you can imagine if people out there reading the news are following this story and all of a sudden the story's upset. Mm -hmm. Some of them probably think in, in these situations occasionally that Innocence Canada is seen as bad guys helping, uh, helping a bad guy get out. Yeah. Right? Yep. And that needs a bit of PR. Totally it does. Innocence Canada's mandate is to identify, advocate for, and exonerate individuals who have been convicted of a crime they did not commit 
and to prevent wrongful convictions through legal education and reform. In the years since its inception, Innocence Canada's team of volunteers have reviewed hundreds of cases, leading to the successful exoneration of over 24 innocent people who together spent more than 200 years in prison for crimes they didn't commit. Innocence Canada's team of pro bono lawyers is currently reviewing approximately 80 claims of innocence. So they do, not only are they trying to get people out, they're doing it for free. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's really cool. Have, I, I haven't heard any case where um, innocence got them out and then they're found to actually have done it. Have you? I haven't, no. Um, I, I, I'm, sure, I'm sure if I dug, <laughs> we might be able to find something somewhere where... If anyone knows, let us know. Yeah. But imagine how hard this is. Yeah. So, Mike, you're a lawyer doing it pro bono, right? Mm -hmm. You get piles on your desk. Yeah. And you have to figure out which ones are scammers just trying to get out and which, sure. which ones are real. Mm -hmm. And there must be some cases where you're not sure and you don't take it. And yeah. But would you lay in bed at night, like, worried, oh, my God, I could... If you it know? was... See, maybe that's, the, maybe that's the litmus test that they use. If it's bothering them continually yeah it's probably one that they're gonna take it'd be a hard job yeah <laughs> yep <laughs> probably not this one though i think it's all so obvious yeah i think this one was a walk in the park for them well i don't think so <laughs> <laughs> anyway innocence canada's page dedicated to kyle unger's case explains in detail what happened with him quote Kyle maintained his innocence to no avail throughout the following decade, but finally the tide turned in April 2003. DNA results obtained in another Innocence Canada client's case, that of James Driscoll, called into question the hair microscopy comparison evidence that had been given at his trial. In an unprecedented and proactive move, the government of Manitoba, under the leadership of Deputy Attorney General Bruce McFarlane, set up the Forensic Review Committee the mandate of which was to ascertain whether there were other cases like James Driscoll's where DNA typing might shed new light on the validity of previous hair microscopy comparison evidence. Under the committee's terms of reference, Innocence Canada designated Ian Garber, a lawyer in the private sector of Manitoba, to sit on the committee. In the spring of 2004, the committee decided that Kyle's conviction fit within their mandate and arrangements were made for post-conviction mitochondrial DNA typing. The single hair that had been retrieved from Ms. Grenier's sweatshirt and identified by an RCMP expert as likely belonging to Kyle, that is, the hair which constituted the only forensic evidence linking Kyle to the crime, was scientifically proven not to be his. On September 13, 2004, Innocence Canada filed an application on Kyle's behalf with the Minister of Justice pursuant to Section 696.1 of the Criminal Code for a ministerial review of his conviction. The application requested that the minister exercise his power to quash Kyle's murder conviction and order a new trial. On November 4, 2005, Kyle was granted bail pending the minister's decision more than 13 years after he was convicted. The federal Minister of Justice ordered a new trial. Four years later, Unger's name was finally cleared when, on October 23, 2009, Manitoba's Deputy Attorney General formally withdrew the charges against Kyle and asked that he be officially acquitted. However, there would be no public inquiry into his wrongful conviction, nor would he be offered compensation. While Kyle's freedom was no longer in jeopardy, his battle for justice was far from over. End quote. Innocence Canada cited the problems with jailhouse informants, police tunnel vision, bad science, and a false confession acquired by the Mr. Big Sting as factors having led to Kyle Unger's wrongful conviction. Unger said that he had confessed to the killing out of desperation. Quote, When you're young, naive, and desperate for money, they hold a lot of promises to you. So you say and do what you have to to survive, just like in prison, Unger told reporters in 2009. According to CBC, Kyle Unger filed suit in 2011 for $14.5 million, a million dollars for each of his 14 years behind bars, against the RCMP and a number of federal and provincial just officials, including former Manitoba Crown Prosecutor George Dangerfield, who was responsible for three other murder convictions that were eventually overturned. 
In 2019, Kyle Unger's civil case was settled in his favor. Caitlin McGregor, press secretary for the Manitoba Justice Minister Cliff Cullen, responded to a CBC email request for an interview with the minister by saying, quote, the terms of this agreement are confidential, end quote. According to Innocence Canada, there are wounds inflicted on Kyle that cannot be healed. They wrote, quote, like many wrongly convicted people, Kyle continues to do battle in the court of public opinion. Miss Grenier's death was a tragedy in their small, closely knit community. Like the police who were unwilling to let go of their initial suspicion of Kyle, even in the face of significant evidence of his innocence, many people in Roseisle continue to believe that Kyle killed Bridget Grenier. Kyle spent his 20s and early 30s in prison, and while he has regained his freedom, he will never be able to replace those lost 14 years. But we hope that his future will hold positive life goals and opportunities that will allow him to grow and achieve his life goals. End quote. It seems that justice for Bridget Grenier has been pushed aside. Kyle Unger didn't kill her. Tim Houlihan is deceased and won't be retried. So we hope that Bridget's family is able to move forward in the most positive ways possible. And our thoughts are with them. Our thoughts are with them. Yeah, our thoughts are with them. Yeah, and and that's I think what one of these issues is with Mr. Big is okay is they they can be overturned, mm-hmm. they can make mistakes, and yeah. you know I if I was a family member I wouldn't want just some guy to be brought to justice. I'd want the right guy to be brought to justice. Yeah, absolutely. And right. and the thing about th- this is you're in a family where somebody is murdered, somebody is convicted for that murder. And then 14 years later, Innocence Canada has them released. Yeah. You've believed that this was the murderer the whole time and that justice has been served. And then you, re- then you hear it hasn't. So how does the family react? Do they say, well, no, Innocence Canada did the wrong thing. He was actually still the guy. What do they believe? Yeah. I'm, and, and who knows? But, yeah. you know, it's hard. And, uh, you know, I was thinking you know, Canadian cop TV shows. Yeah. You know, like you, do south. <laughs> you, you know how how often when they're like, "We've caught the killer," and they're like, "Thank you." Yeah. Well, in Canada, those shows should go. We've caught the killer. Are you sure you got the right guy? Well, the Mounties always get their person. I get they use Mr. the same Big. man. Yeah, using Mister Big. Oh boy. And that's it for Dark Poutine episode two hundred and fifty four. Failed justice: the murder of Bridget Grenier. Stay tuned for voicemails and Patreon shoutouts. That's right. It's time for voicemails. You can leave us a message at one 327 5786 or one 877 darkptn We'd love to hear from you. Let's see who called us this week. Alrighty, it is time for voicemails. Uh, now that Matthew is done being crude and crass <laughs> off, the, off mic, well, he was actually doing it in my ear, which is... Uh, I was rubbing my microphone on my crotch so my cat to have it in his ear. It's gross. <laughs> Oral sex. Blech. A-U-R-A-L. Get it? Uh, audible. <laughs> anyway, let's move on to voicemails before I throw up. Hi there. My name is uh, Cheyenne Blazer, currently living in Calgary, but I'm from the Rocky Mountains. Grew up in Exshaw, actually. I uh, just finished listening to your most recent podcast episode of course and absolutely loved it um i thought i'd share a little bit of need information since i am from exshaw and you did cover a case about a man that dismembered his ex-girlfriend's boyfriend um anyway i actually lived down the road from the house where that man lived not at the time where the crime occurred but there was of course rumors and and stuff that went around the neighborhood and it was a bit of a spooky house. Anyway, so uh, when uh, he went to disperse the dismembered pieces, he actually went into the mountains behind my house. And so me and my mom went on a hike um, just randomly. We didn't think much of it. And we were following a trail that was half of it was flagged by um, orange flagging tape. And then the other half was, um, there were markers of like Inukshuks, um, made out of stone. And we theorized that maybe this was how that individual was marking his path. And then the flagging tape, of course, 
belonged to the officers that were also pursuing him and looking for um, the body parts. We also found on this hike um, a collapsible shovel, which along the same tra- trail by an Inukshuk. And so we uh, we like to think that maybe that's what uh, the individual used to bury some of the remains. Um, anyway, I thought it was a funny story and I actually, I didn't realize that I was listening to that podcast episode until like halfway through when you mentioned Exha and I was like, oh my God, I'm from there. Anyway, thank you so much for doing what you do. I look forward to each and every episode and go take a dookie in your tukey. Thank you so much. Bye. Wow. Thank you so much. That's, that's really cool. That's an interesting story. I'm glad uh, it's and I'm, I really like that her name is Cheyenne and she she grew up in the Rocky Mountains. Yeah, right. <laughs> That's like her parents must have done that on purpose. Yeah, what a weird story too. Like if I know. you find that you kind imagine? of strange stuff when you're hiking. I hope, I hope you didn't touch the shovel. Yeah, right. Anyway, moving forward. Uh, next up, another voicemail. Surprise! Another voicemail. Hi, it's Allie from Victoria, British Columbia. I am just sitting here with my lovely Shih Tzu Maltese Coda, and we were just listening to the David Ruffalo case. I can't tell you guys how awesome and how good of a job you guys did. Um, I actually go to the same school that he used to go to, and I will definitely check out his yearbook photo from when he graduated. Um, It's just interesting to see how these things actually happen in this kind of town. Um, You guys did an amazing job again. Oh, yeah. My birthday is tomorrow on January 25th. I'm calling on the 24th. And it would be great for a birthday shout-out. Um, go shit in your hat. Bye. So you'll hear this in a couple of weeks, but anyway. Happy belated. Happy belated birthday. And we hope you had some cake and all that kind of stuff. And we love to hear from people who are from the towns that we talk about. Or, and, or knew the people or, involved. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's really, you know, it's a very Canadian thing. Like, yeah, yeah I don't know. Anyway, happy birthday. Hopefully you had an awesome day and, uh, yeah, don't go crap in your hat. No. Cause I guess those little party hats would really no. not do well with a poo in them. No, right through. Yeah. Uh, let's listen to another voicemail. I am in a weird mood today. Anyway. Hey, Mike and Matt. I have been listening since the very, very beginning of the dark poo scene, but I have not yet called. I'm Carly. Um, and I'm currently living in Virginia, but when I called the first time for my patronage, I was living in Missouri. Um, I was not planning on calling until you did the John Lennon episode because my whole family are huge Beatles fans. He's my favorite. I have two Beatles tattoos, and it was just a great episode that showed a bunch of stuff that I I didn't even know about John Lennon. Um, I appreciate you guys so much. Um, I'm an avid listener on my way to work and home and keep doing what you're doing. And I've been waiting to say this for so long. Go take a shit in your hat. Bye guys. <laughs> Thank you. That the John Lennon episode, uh, I am such a massive Beatles fan. I, I don't know if people know that, but I love the Beatles. Always have, always will. Um, yeah, it, it, I wanted to do a good job with that. And so I dug pretty hard into my archives about John mm. Lennon and that kind of thing. So yeah, just kind of fun, uh, stuff. Uh, it's kind of an, it's an interesting story and a tragic end to a great person's life. Yeah. It's interesting how some people are super fans. Yeah. You know, me, I like totally like a lot, like some of their music I completely understand the influence they have, mm-hmm. but but I'm I'm not sort of obsessive super fan about it. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I I kind of am. 
Yeah, but and but you don't get you, you. I find I've never met somebody who goes Beatles hate them. I've never found anyone. There, you're either a super fan or like you totally recognize that they did some really good music. Maybe not all of it that you liked, mm-hmm. right? But I've never met somebody who went, "Nah, they're they're crap." <laughs> I know people who who say they're crappy, but but they weren't. Those are people who I don't really talk to, <laughs> and. Uh, I was working with a guy one time. I was actually his boss and he was 18 or 19. Mm. And uh, we were talking about music and he was telling me about what he listens to and all that kind of stuff. And I said, uh, you know, what well, what do you think of the Beatles? And he said, who are the Beatles? Yeah. We're getting And old. I said, your parents are shitty people. <laughs> <laughs> if they didn't introduce you to the Beatles, your parents well, are not good I people. I bet you there's a lot of kids now that don't know. Yeah. My my stepdad's a huge Beatles fan. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so was Diane, my birth mom, big Beatles fan. So much so, she named me after a Beatles song. I'm, anyway. I'm a big Carly Simon fan, and her name was Carly, so thank you for calling in, Carly. You're so vain. I bet you think this mentions about me. <laughs> oh, dear. That's it for this week's voicemails. Again, you can leave us one at one 327 5786 one eight seven seven D A R K P T N. We'd love to hear from you, even if it is just to say hi and to tell us to go shit in our hats. If you're stumped for what to chat with us about, a quick story is welcome. It is time for Patreon and Donut Money donors, and I am singing, and I probably shouldn't be. Is that singing? Yeah, it's it's a, a reasonable facsimile of singing. <laughs> Uh, first up, as far as Patreon goes, we have Rhonda Webb, and Rhonda is from Raleigh, North Carolina, in the United States of America. Oh, yeah. Thank you, Rhonda. Yes, thank you so much. So, um, what does Rhonda do there? So Webb. Yes. Comes from Middle English Wib. Okay. Which meant weaver, so she is a basket weaver. She's a basket weaver? Yes, she oh. makes baskets. Well... I'm a basket case, mm-hmm. so, so there is that. But, oh, basket weaver. Yeah. It's interesting. What, what, what uh, Does she make the baskets for any particular thing or, you know? No, for no, everything from... Just to he- hold stuff. From eggs to hammers. Oh, there you go. Or body parts. <laughs> hampers. Body parts. Uh, no, no, but I can't see, like... My... Grandmother-in-law. Oh, I was thinking, you're going to say something about my, body parts. My grandmother-in-law's uh, coffin. Yes, was a big woven basket. Those I've seen those, and they're really cool yeah, looking. Yeah. They look really, really neat. Yeah, it was beautiful. Yeah. Um. So, so was she was she buried or was she cremated? Because cremated. Interesting. Yeah. Dead people don't usually get buried in the UK. Yeah, my grandmother. <laughs> Uh, I don't know if I've told this story on the podcast before, but my grandmother was a, uh, the deputy registrar in my hometown. Like I've mentioned that. Mm -hmm. So she did, signed all the death certificates and all the birth certificates, Mm -hmm. did marriage licenses. She did, uh, uh, fishing licenses, hunting licenses, all that kind of stuff. So she used to have to get the death certificates from the local funeral directors and the owner of the crematorium. Mm-hmm. And the owner of the crematorium used to bug her about, are, hey, Vera, are you going to get cremated? And she she called him Doodle Drawers. That was her name for somebody she didn't like. Doodled. Doodle Drawers. Like, so, so he's essentially selling her on cremation. Selling her on cremation. Life. And she'd, she said, he'd say to me, oh, come on, it's all nice and warm in there. And she said, I don't like that doodle drawers. Doodle drawers. Anyway. I'm going to start using doodle drawers, Mike. Yeah, well, doodle drawers is a good nickname for somebody. It's, uh, it's a really good insult. <laughs> yeah, it's it's sort of a charming insult. It's charming. It's, you, nobody's going to take too much of an offense yeah, to her. Right? Exactly. Yeah, that was my grandma. <laughs> doodle drawers. Doodle drawers. Um, all right, that's it for, uh, oh, no, it's not. No. Um, so she's a basket weaver. Very cool. Uh, next we have uh, Tracy Claassen. And I don't know where Tracy's from. You know how we covered a place called Miami School for, in Miami, 
Manitoba today. Yes. She's from Antwerp, Ohio. Antwerp. Tracy is. <laughs> Antwerp. Okay. Antwerp, Ohio. And of course, she's a chocolatier. Oh, so she's a, she, and she does Belgian chocolate. Yeah. yeah. Out of Antwerp. Uh, well, uh, she's in Antwerp, isn't she? Yes, exactly. It's a Belgian, Ohio mashup. Oh, there you go. That's <laughs> fascinating. Antwerp. I wonder if there are Belgians that live there. And that's why it's named Probably Antwerp. how it got started, right? Yeah, it's like London, Ontario. Because or or Ber Berlin, Ontario, which is now Kitchener. Was ist los mit Berlin? Yeah, after the First World War, they thought they'd change it. Uh, yeah, well, that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. And then we're happy about the decision by the Second World War. <laughs> oh, dear. All righty. So uh, as far as donut money donors go, we have, first up, Oh my goodness, mm. I didn't write it down. I think his name is Thomas. No, we have Amy oh. Tom Have, and it's spelled T-O-M-H-A-V-E. So I don't know if it's Tom Have or Tom Have. Okay. But anyway, she says, you guys. Us guys. Us guys. Don't eat shit, eat donuts. <laughs> <laughs> Can I have a chocolate donut, please? Yeah. And she says, loving your show in Ventura, California. Hello from the Sunshine State. All the best, Amy T. Well, thank you very, very much. I've always liked the name of that town. Yeah. Ventura. It sounds exciting, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Because, you know, I, I like the Ventures, the, the surf music by the Ventures. I wonder if they're from Ventura. That would make sense. Was Ace Ventura from Ventura? Probably. Okay. <laughs> Probably. Anyway, uh, next and uh, not not least is uh, an email from Thomas Potter. And Thomas said, donut money from that taxi podcast. And so he emailed me a while ago and I just haven't gotten around to emailing him. Okay. So that taxi podcast... Uh, is hosted by Thomas and his buddy David. And they dropped our, their first episode at the end of August and they drop a new one every week. And they say their subject matter is much lighter than ours. Okay. Because they're taxi drivers in Bellingham, Washington. So no. Yeah, in Bellingham. And Bellingham. Like to relate crazy and funny stories about cab rides and life in general. And they said they noticed similarities between our two shows, mostly behind the scenes stuff. We edit our own feed, much like you did starting out. Well, guess what? I still do it. Is one of them a big old gayer like me? As well? I don't know. It doesn't say. <laughs> <laughs> but he goes on to have like questions about editing software and that kind of stuff. You know what I think we should do with these guys? Have them on the after show. That's right. I think we're going to have... And I also want to get a free taxi ride next time I'm in Bellingham. That taxi podcast. <laughs> so, yeah, let's have a listen to that that taxi podcast. Everybody, this week. Let's have a listen this week. Yeah. And then you and I can have them on the, on the after show in a couple of weeks. Yeah. Okay. Uh, oh, yeah. I'll, I'll email them back and see if they want to come on. Yeah. If they might not want to. They might, if they, they don't, they might think they're too good for us. It could be. They they probably are. <laughs> <laughs> they probably are. He does wouldn't, also wouldn't, wouldn't be hard, would it, Mike? No. With co-hosts like me on the show. <laughs> and Thomas, Thomas and David also mentioned that they like uh, the tragically hip, especially three three pistols off uh, the road apples. And we um, won't hold, hold that against them. Though. See, Matthew's not a tragically hip fan, but I still speak to him. Anyway, overrated. <laughs> no, I love them. It, and which is really weird because you generally have good taste in music. Anyway, moving <laughs> forward. That's it for patrons and donut money donors. Ugh. Thanks to all our patrons and donut money donors past and present for your generosity. It helps to keep the show going. You can become a patron of Dark Poutine at patreon.com slash darkpoutine. For a one-time donation, you can send us donut money via PayPal using our email address, darkpoutinepodcast at gmail.com. If you don't already subscribe to the show, it would mean a lot if you did. You can easily find Dark Poutine on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. If you haven't gotten yours yet, my book, Murder, Madness, and Mayhem, is available to order via a link on the Dark Poutine website. And speaking of darkpoutine.com, please check it out for show notes and other cool stuff. We'd appreciate it if you took the time to give Dark Poutine a like or a follow on Facebook and Instagram. Most importantly, thank you for listening. 
and tell your friends about us. Word of mouth is a powerful thing. Okay, uh, that is it for this episode. Uh, yet another Mr. Big. Wow, Mike. Yep. You, uh, yeah, that was good. Sorry, you, you, you had me pulled in on that one right at the beginning. I appreciate that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it, it's a story that I was compelled to write. I want to do more wrongful conviction stories as well. And if you want to check out the Innocence Canada website, just Google Innocence Canada, you'll find it. And you'll and see thank, plenty of thank stories. thank them for what they do. That's right. Yeah, they, hey, when I was asking those questions about them, is only because I think they do a great job earlier on. Totally, totally. Just trying to figure out like, God, it must be hard. It has to be yeah, hard. Yeah. Anyway, that's it for this week. Don't forget to be a good egg and not a bad apple. Bye. Bye. Her name is Elspeth. Elspeth Tassioni. You know her as the offbeat but brilliant defense attorney from The Good Wife and The Good Fight. You've been a very busy little bee. Buzz, buzz. Now, she's in New York with the NYPD. This is very different. Better. But still using her unconventional ways to find the truth. You're trying to sniff me, Miss Tassioni? <laughs> Elspeth, new series Thursdays on Global. Stream on Stack TV.